Amen. Let's continue worshiping the Lord this morning as we turn to the word yes, but also specifically as we go to him in prayer. So let's pray to God again this morning. Let's pray. God Almighty, we come this morning and we just all just praise you. We rejoice and we look to you as the God who is our hope. Thank you for seeking after us. Never would have sought you. And we praise you. We thank you for daily mercies, your every mercy of every day, of every hour, of every moment. We thank you. We rejoice in you this morning and we pray as we come that you would help us to seek you and we do seek you. We seek your face and we we pray that you would help us to to come and humble ourselves under your word and, and humble ourselves just to receive all that you say and and to do all that you call us to do. And so help us, Father, to indeed be doers of the word and not merely hearers of it. May each of us ground our lives in Christ. And if there are any here who do not know Christ this morning, may they find life in Christ this morning. They may even experience what we just sang about, the power of the cross. And have life in Christ. And so help us that we would ground our lives in Christ. And not just merely these moments in Christ. And so we pray that your name would go out this service. Your name would go out in our hearts and our lives and everywhere. We pray that your name and the gospel would go out among the nations. We pray for our nation that you may lead it to Christ and repentance and to faith in in you, O Lord God. We pray that they would, uh, each one would see how desperate we are and how desperate really we need you. And stop seeking our own ways and seek yours. And so help us, Lord. May the gospel advance. May the gospel advance now in our hearts and may you indeed deal with our hearts this morning. May you give us grace as we turn to your word. Now we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles there to the gospel of John. And we will be continuing John chapter 18. We started that last week. And so this week we'll be in John 18 verses 20 or 12 through 27. Now, as I read scripture, you know, again and again, I just can't help but be amazed at the great continual, continual, continual grace of God. You know, story after story, you just find again and again grace. Grace and more grace. And now I certainly recognize, and you recognize also as you read the word, 
that does not mean that there are not consequences, right? That sin doesn't have consequences to it. It's serious and deserving of judgment. But continually as you read the word of God, you see just this continual tone of grace. Even in Genesis chapter 3, as they get thrown out of the garden, grace that you're alive. God did not have to let us live, but he did. So just grace, grace, and more grace. So one story among the many that particularly amazes me in this way, and really in many of these ways, is one you may not be thinking of, but one that I often think of is that of the story of King David and Bathsheba. You know, you very likely know the story well, but you know, King David, what? Did he, he had it all, right? You know, he, he was in a good spot. <laughs> you know, God had blessed him greatly, immensely, and incredibly. You know, what is he, how is he seen? He is seen as what? That's right, a man after God's own heart. Yet, as he walks along his roof of his house, an army is sent out, and there he is when he perhaps should have went, long, should have went along with them. He sees a woman there bathing, Bathsheba. And so what does he do? He, he sends for her. He sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant and in a very strategic kind of evil effort to cover his tracks. He takes her husband's life and kills him. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, I've, I've, I've thought of that often over the years. And, you know, we think of David as a man after God's own heart. And when you read of that and when you, you think about that, the question comes up, doesn't it? <laughs> a man after God's own heart does, does that? I mean, how could someone sin like that and still know God? I mean, it wasn't just one thing. It was like a whole kingdom was led into sin by David. Well, David did know God. And honestly, he still does know God. Now, there were very real and very serious consequences for what he did, weren't there? And they followed him until the very end of his life for what he did. But what did he do? He repented before the living God. He saw his sin for what it was. Not something to be excused, but something to, to take on and say, yes, I committed this sin. And what does he say in Psalm 51? He cries out to God, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So he doesn't rise up in pride. He humbles himself before the living God. And God did what? He forgave him. Amen. 
grace, grace, grace. That doesn't mean that God just pushes our sin under the rug like, ah, well, you know. No. That sin was forgiven in Christ. As we look back to Christ, David was looking forward to Christ. It wasn't pushed under a rug. It was paid for by Christ. It was costly. It required his death for us. As we look at that and we think about David, I just want to ask a question. How does that happen, though? That the kind of walking into that sin and that grievous way, how do falls like that happen? Well, in our passage this morning, I think we find help for us. As we seek to navigate our own hearts and lives, because if we're honest, and hopefully you're being honest with ourselves here, is yes, we struggle with sin very deeply, every single one of us. So as we're seeking to deal with that in ourselves, as we come to our passage, we see and we look at here at Christ's great declaration, but then also we look at Peter's great denial. So let's look at our passage this morning then, beginning with verse 12. May God bless his humbling, mercy-given, and Christ-exalting word. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door, at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of these, this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. 
One of the servants, the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Now last week, as we started this chapter, we saw the dam break, didn't we? Basically, all of the gospel had been leading up to this kind of point. We've seen the cracks developing here and there, getting bigger, hearing the rebellion against Jesus, the plan against Jesus, and now the dam breaks. And Judas, with some 200 plus soldiers, which could have been even up to 600, just soldiers side of things, and then with him, a number of Jewish temple officers came as well. And they confronted Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now here Jesus is moving quickly onward toward the cross. And so the dam indeed has broken. And so in our verses here then, we have kind of this back and forth narrative. And you may have noticed that and maybe you're just Wondering about as well, so that, that, that kind of back and forth. So it goes, Jesus, then back to Peter. <laughs> you know, Jesus, then back to Peter. You know, kind of like a movie, you know, that switches back and forth between scenes. And so in that, you know, you, you see that. You may have read it many times. It's been like, that's just the way it is. But, <laughs> you know, as you, as you see that, we need to ask rightly, and maybe you already have asked this question, is Why? You know, why is John doing that? Why does he structure it this way, specifically, Jesus, Peter, Jesus, Peter? Well, he has a reason. And he wants you and I to see that reason. And so he's, he's moving the narrative forward then on these two sort of fronts. On the one, he's providing a piece of the gospel story that the other gospels do not well, what part of that? What part is that? What's, in the other Gospels, there's no kind of leading off to Annas first. It goes from the garden to Caiaphas. So you may not just know that, you know, just reading it right now, but he is led off to Caiaphas here, but it doesn't happen until verse 24. And then after, so after Annas, he gets led off to Caiaphas. So that's one kind of thing he's setting up for us. He's saying, here's something else that is happening in the life of Christ and that did happen in the life of Christ. And then two, John is setting up a contrast here. He is going back and forth between Jesus and Peter on purpose to contrast their two different responses. The two different dispositions that they have in the midst of all these things that are going on. And what's the two different dispositions? Well, while Jesus is being faithful to the Father, doing everything according to the good will of God, while he is still heralding himself the gospel, what is Peter doing? He's denying. So you see that contrast then. And so we'll look at the first one first. So with Jesus then we see the gospel heralded. The gospel heralded. 
So we don't find a Jesus here, as I said last week, who kind of goes off kicking and screaming, right? Like, no, 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 don't take me. You know, he's not, he doesn't do that. He, he, he specifically, purposefully, intentionally steps forward. I am your man, you know. He, he's saying, take me. I'm the one that you want. So it wasn't the officers. It wasn't the soldiers. It wasn't Judas who finally got him, you know. And so we saw from verses 1 through 11, Jesus, he went of his own accord. Just think about that for you. And why he did that. So he is in control as he's pressing on towards the cross. He is the great I am. And so it was that he answered as they asked, you know, if Jesus of Nazareth, you know, we're looking for him. Well, he said, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. Well, I am he or ego a me. I am. Exodus 3.14. Tell I am, I've sent you. And so of his own accord, he accepted unjust treatment at the hand of sinners. And he accepts it even though he's an innocent man. Though he had done no wrong, he was bound and treated as a criminal. He was, he was what? He was tied up like a lamb led to the slaughter. And in this way, he is fulfilling God's word from Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that goes before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That doesn't mean that he didn't talk. We see he talks. But he is aiming himself towards the cross. And he does nothing to keep himself from it. So he is an innocent man and also he accepts all this even though he would be given a mock trial. So John, he doesn't doesn't give us all the full kind of trial proceedings here, but we are told that this is exactly what his trial would be. It's just a mock trial. In verse 14, it makes that clear. So in, in John 11, when Caiaphas said, verse 14, so John eleven forty nine 49-53, Caiaphas, he said, one man should die for the people, and then, after he said that, there and then, what did they do? They made plans to put him to death. So they'd already decided. It was already in their minds. Like, we just need to figure out how we're going to kill him, but we're going to kill him. So it was just a mock trial. And so Jesus was led on to Annas and the high priest. So the high priest who was Caiaphas' father-in-law, who was high priest that year, and Maybe that just right there just confuses you, right? <laughs> you know, what in the world is going on here? So let me clarify here, and this isn't just a small clarification. Some may say, well, here's a contradiction. Well, it's certainly not. Caiaphas was indeed the high priest at the time, and so there, there weren't 
technically two high priests or weren't to be two high priests. They were supposed to basically serve in life terms. So you're, you're, once you're a priest, you're always a high priest. But Annas was removed by Pilate's predecessor in AD 15 by Gratus. And so there's this kind of political kind of thing going on and maneuvering and trying to get him out of there. And so there's all these politics going on. Annas and then his, his sons become high priests after him. And then here comes Caiaphas as well, who's, uh, you know, his son-in-law. He also becomes high priest. So all these kind of political kind of things are going on. They're working with Rome, trying to figure out everything. And all this is going on. And so you could really say that behind the priesthood really was probably Annas. He's kind of the real guy behind the scenes who's kind of calling the shots. But you see here, there's a kind of this tension here, and this is what we're seeing in this passage, is kind of this, this contrast and these tensions where many people thought of Annas as the real high priest, and so everyone's just being called high priest. You know, the confusion going on. So in other words, even though Caiaphas was technically the high priest at the time, there's no conflict here in being, Annas being called high priest as well. And so Jesus, he comes then before Annas, and already it's all wrong. So according to the law, witnesses were to be called, and no one was to be put to death based on one witness. But what happens here? Just this time with Annas. No witnesses. <laughs> no one's called. It's just Annas questioning Jesus. And so we actually see Jesus calls him out on this. So in verse 21, he says, Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So you see, this is, this is how it's important here. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know all that with all of this background and everything else. Jesus is making a specific point. And so to add, all, add to all of this, one of the officers then, what does he do? He strikes him without real, any real justification whatsoever. And John, he wants you to see all of this. This isn't just fluff in a sermon. John wants you to know this is what's going on. God wants you and I to see his son and how he is being treated and how Jesus is standing his ground uprightly, boldly, in full obedience to the Father. And he is doing this out of love for the Father. Above all, I do everything to please him, is what he says. And he's doing this for your salvation. And so Jesus, he is not hiding. And he is not denying anything. Instead, he declared the gospel openly. So he answers Annas. I have spoken openly to the world. And then in there, I have said nothing in secret. And so all that comes in contrast to Peter, while Jesus is being tested and challenged and tried, 
Jesus, he holds fast to who he is. He holds fast to his mission. He holds fast to his message. Well, not so with Peter. Instead, what is Peter doing? He's warming himself by a fire. (laughs) He's making himself comfortable. While Jesus is here on the spot, under trial, being persecuted, being judged, he's warming up. (laughs) He's warming his hand. So you see that? We're meant to see that. So even now, as Jesus is being dragged through the mud, we are meant to learn from Christ. As Christ held fast to who He is, His mission, and His message, we also are to know Christ. We are to know our mission. And we are to know the message. Jesus knew who He was. And we are to know who He is also. And knowing Christ and in grounding our lives in Christ, we will know who we are also. In other words, our identity is to be in Christ. He is the one who defines you at every single level. He is the one who is to define you at every single level of who you are. You know, since I became a Christian, you know, nearly 20 years ago now, I have found that those times that I'm most drawn to sin is when I'm least focused on Christ and on who I am in Christ. So with good reason, we are told again and again in Scripture to what we're told again and again in Scripture not to take our eyes off of Christ. You're to be defined by Him. You're to continually look to Him. And so consider these exhortations, 2 Corinthians 10.5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. When we cease doing that, when we start letting other things take us captive and when they replace Christ, we do what then? We, get, we begin kind of falling or leaning towards those sinful ways. Being drawn to things that are contrary to Christ. Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. We have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you see the urgency, like keep your eyes on Him. Be defined by Him. Let everything in your life be Christ. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is what Paul was doing. And then Hebrews 12 also. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And this fixing of our eyes on Christ, 
this knowing him, remembering who he is, remembering and knowing what he has done and who we are in him will be a contrary word to that sin which clings so closely. And we agreed right at the beginning, it does cling closely. You want to know how to fight it? Well, here we are. Here we are. And that won't mean you'll come to a day where you'll be, you know, not needing to fight, not needing to wage war, not needing to fight against sin and self. But see, see here how deeply our love for Christ is to compel us even as sin beats against your door again and again and again, day after day, morning by morning, afternoon by afternoon. After you leave here, you're going to be battling with it. Before you go to bed tonight, you're going to be battling with it also as you're fighting this fight. See how deeply our love for Christ matters. Amen. And so we are to know Him and then we are also to know our mission. So on February 3rd, 1943, a a troop ship named the Dorchester was traveling across the North Atlantic and on board there were more than 900 souls. So we're crossing the seas. This German U-boat sends out three torpedoes at their ship. And one of them hits the mark essentially guaranteeing that this ship is going to sink. No doubt. Yet as it was sinking, we've heard this before, different stories, but there was not enough light boats for everyone on this ship. And so four chaplains, where they were remaining on the boat, coming alongside those who were injured and dying and encouraging them, comforting them, pointing to God. And as the ship was near sinking, those four chaplains... Took off, the right, took off their vests and they gave them the four young soldiers who were without them. And so those four chaplains lost their lives for the four. Well, our mission isn't to accumulate as much stuff as we can for a boat that is sinking. We are to be like those chaplains, that we have a gospel to give. We have a mission that we are on. It may not cost your life, but it's surely worthy of your life. So knowing our mission gives us a gospel grit about us. It travails the difficult past. It faces opposition. It finds a way. It confronts sin in our lives and otherwise. And so we also We know him, know our mission, and know our message. It's not good to know your mission if you don't know your message. The content of our message matters. People are in need of a Savior. People are sinners in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, He went as a lamb to the slaughter to pay the penalty for your sin and that by putting your faith in Christ, 
you will be saved. And your sins, they will be forgiven forever. And you'll be given new life. Psychology won't do that for you. Religion won't do that for you. Legalism and rules will not do that for you. Princes or presidents won't do that for you. It is only Christ who will do that. And so it is in Christ alone that we are saved. And so we need no Christ. We need know our mission and we need to know our message and we need Herald Christ. So in contrast then to that, to Jesus, the gospel heralded, we see here also the gospel denied. So in contrast to Jesus, we have Peter. So with each of Peter's denials here, we see the avalanche effect of sin. What do I mean by that? Avalanche effect of sin. Well, one small sin is often behind the massive avalanche of sin that follows. It begins small. And man, what damage it does. What damage it does. And so while Jesus was led to Annas, we see here Peter, he follows Jesus to the courtyard of the high priest. And he kind of stands outside for a bit, you know, waiting, because he's not cool enough to get inside, I guess, or not cool enough in this instance. And so he stands there until the other disciple, who was likely John, kind of talks to the servant girl and helps him get in. Now, maybe it happened... That as Peter was there, you know, he was almost kind of going through the door of the courtyard that maybe it was right around then that the servant girl kind of yells, you know, as he's going through, Oh, hey, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, this is conjecture. This part I'm going to tell you is conjecture on my part. But I wonder... If this was just the arrow that was needed from the devil, this is the arrow that the devil knew that would push Peter over the edge. What in the world do I mean? Well, the question was rather easy. It was an easygoing question. You just lean right into it. It has an implied no to it. You also are not one of this, this man's disciples, are you? Implied answer? No. <laughs> Just lean into it, Peter. You, this, all this stuff is a lot. I mean, look what they're doing with Jesus. Easy. No. <laughs> and so Peter goes along with her. Yeah, that's right, I'm not. And then presumably after Jesus is led to Caiaphas, which was likely within the same house, if you're trying to square all this together, you know, <laughs> Annas, Caiaphas, he's led to Caiaphas. How does that work out? Same courtyard. Well, Peter denies Jesus again. And see it again. The second question is the same way. The implied answer 
is no. <laughs> I think this is just the, the strategy of Satan here. He's just trying to make it as easy as possible. Just, just lean right in, Peter. Just lean into the question. And so the avalanche keeps going. Now the last question, though. It doesn't have an implied no. It has an implied yes. Which is interesting. So one of the relatives of Malchus eventually asks here, didn't I see you in the garden? <laughs> implied answer would be, if he's being honest, yes! But Peter would answer no this time also. He would specifically and intentionally fly against the grain of the question. And so where before it was rather easy, now he is specifically, intentionally kind of saying, no, I am not. I was not there. I'm not his disciple. And so he denies Christ a third time. And it makes me think of the phrase, you know, one good turn deserves another. And this is often the way we, we deal with sin or we, you know, struggle with sin. Giving in once, it makes it easier to what? Give in again and again. And so there are, there are many ways for us to fall, but all of it is garden-esque. If you know what I mean. What happens in the garden stays in the garden, you know? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Is that true? <laughs> well, my goodness, no. What happened in the garden killed every single one of us. What a big lie. So my goodness, no. So how do we get there? How does this avalanche happen? Well, we lose sight of who he is. We lose sight of who Christ is. Sin, it blurs our vision. It, it clouds everything. It makes us lose sight of Christ and what he has done for us. He is the one who we love, the one that we treasure, the one that we're living for. It, it aims your eyes away from Christ instead of towards Christ. Peter's there and all this stuff is going on. The fire's warm. The officers are there. You know, everyone's around there. There's this pressure. You're seeing what's going on with Jesus and it's just, just give in. It's so much easier just to say no. So you lose sight of Christ and then also you lose sight of who we are. We belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. Just let that hear that right now, please, because that means your, your body is not yours. This, this church is not yours. Your house is not yours. Your car is not yours. Your children are not yours. You belong to Jesus Christ, if you know him. Amen. It's all his. And so when we lose sight of who we are in Christ, so then comes fear of losing all those things. So then comes fear of the past, fear of the present, fear of the future, fear of men, fear of loss, fear of harm, and so on. Which I think is what exactly was going through Peter's mind. 
So in contrast to standing upon Christ, upon our mission, upon our message, we lose sight of it all. So let me ask two questions here. Let these questions just take a man. Let him just examine, examine your heart. So first question, how are you opening the door for denial in your own heart? How are you opening the door for denial in your own heart? You may not be doing it right now, but in the back of your mind, there's a crack. <laughs> just, just the door's open a little bit. If it happens, it comes my way, I'll just right, walk right through the door. Is, is it back there for you? How prone we can be to wonder. Many of you know the hymn, I would imagine. I'm going to sing it here in a minute, but, you know, come thou fount of every blessing. Love that hymn. You know, I'm sure the well-felt line there, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You feel that? The sin which clings so closely. You know the hymn, well, I wonder if you know the man behind the hymn. Robert Robinson was his name. Well, he was a man after he wrote that hymn who was known for wandering. So a story is told of how later in Robinson's life he was riding in a stagecoach and the woman next to him is, you could say ironically, I would say providentially, but was reading that exact hymn, was reading his hymn. And so as they rode along, she turned to Robinson and told him how wonderful this hymn was. You know, how, this, this is just amazing. You know, this is great. When Robinson, he, you know, tries to change the subject, but the woman wouldn't have it. And so he finally tells her, Madam, I'm the poor man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds to enjoy the feelings I had then. How deceptive sin is, brothers and sisters. Just don't listen to it. You're not leaving Christ for something better. You're always leaving Christ for something worse. So let me press upon you how vital it is that we know Christ, we know our mission, and we know our message. Don't lose sight of it. Now, you might be remembering, I said there were two questions, so let me ask you the second question. And here it is. How are you stirring up your love for Christ now? How are you stirring up your love for Christ now? How are you knowing Christ more? How are you grounding your identity in Christ and knowing and living out the mission and knowing and heralding this message. How are you doing that? Really? And it can't just be church. <laughs> That's not the only answer. How are you spurring on a love of Christ that he is your treasure above all? How are you showing everyone that Christ is your delight? So John Bunyan, he wrote on the inside cover of his Bible, 
this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Well, getting in the word is surely part of how we will regularly stir up our love and affections and inflame our love for Christ. So let me ask you, how are you stirring it up? And so I leave these questions with you this morning and not just for you to consider now, but please take it with you. Take these questions home. Think about it. Pray about it. Examine your heart. Ask them of your own hearts. Ask them of yourselves. Talk about them among your families. Talk about them together. And so, let's know Christ. Let's know our mission. And let's know our message, saints. And so, let's proclaim Him and not deny Him. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, just laying our hearts bare, these are challenging things. Sin is, is not just, it's not a joke. It's not something that's easy. But it is something we all have to fight. And what help we find in your word this morning. Just pray for each person here, for all of us, that you would help us to not take lightly sin. And may we know Christ. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, may they today put their faith in Christ. And we pray that we may know our mission and know the message. Help us ask ourselves these questions if we perhaps have been losing sight of him and losing sight of who we are in him. And so we ask, Father, that you would help us as we, we respond this morning in, in song. We respond in our hearts and our lives. And so we ask and we pray your will and your hand your spirit's work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.